0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the second of my two-part conversation with artist Larry Pittman. You may remember that back in October, we aired the first part of my conversation. Basically, Pittman and I sat around and gabbed about his work for so long, and he was so good that I thought we'd run it in two parts. The Hammer Museum recently debuted Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, a terrific retrospective of Pittman's nearly 40-year career. The show reveals Pittman's engagements with America's history and with issues and subjects that have been core to our history and identity, including landscape, violence, citizenship, belonging, and more. It was curated by Hammer Chief curator Connie Butler and is on view through January 5th, 2020. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. You can get it on Amazon for $51. On the second segment, old friend George Shackelford returns to talk about Renoir. But first, Larry Pittman, after the break. the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Beatriz Gonzalez, A Retrospective, the first large-scale U.S. exhibition dedicated to the work of Colombian artist Beatriz Gonzalez. Based in Bogota, Gonzalez is not only an internationally celebrated artist, but also one of the few living representatives of the radical women generation from Latin America. In one of the most comprehensive displays of the artist's work to date, Beatriz Gonzalez, A Retrospective, presents more than 100 works from the early 1960s through the present, works that embody the full scope of Gonzalez's oeuvre. On view through January 20th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Gonzalez for more. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, K. Sage, and Stanley Whitney is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And now to the second part of my conversation with Larry Pittman. When we left off the first part of our conversation, we were talking about ways queer identity manifested itself in the paintings, and we kind of branched off from that. There's one more thing in that line from, two more things in that line from which I wanna pick up. And one is how you've painted the figure. There have been times in your career where you've been happy to paint figures and have painted lots of them. There have been other times in your career where we get body parts and not the rest of the figure, if you will. Um, That sounds far more violent than I mean it (laughs) to. (laughs) The first period during which the figure really comes in is in the Beloved and Despised paintings of the late 80s and early 90s, Um, and the figure comes in through the silhouette, which you nearly single-handedly introduced into contemporary art. One of the things about the silhouettes is that some of them are obviously very, very obviously men, but there are many moments in the paintings where the gender of the silhouetted head or bust, neck, shoulders up, is indistinct and there are a couple of times in the paintings where you point to that by linking them with white lines that join those two silhouettes to other parts of the painting were the silhouettes ever always never for you about gender being constructed rather than innate were they about complicating ideas of gender
1: well you're right in your viewing of some of the the figures you you, you, are they effeminate men or butch women? You know, I mean, I to put that, to advance that
0: but kind even, of useless binary at this point. But even to back you know. up, some of the silhouettes also kind of have indistinct profiles, so not reading as male or female, and ponytails. And in the context of those paintings, which you're referring to a, an American colonial past, men wore ponytails. You know, there's, a, there's a, an even multi-painting painting Narrative and reference there. I think in those
1: paintings, I was, I was looking at the silhouette both as a specific image of a person and as an archetype. And in looking at, in especially in the in American history, there's so much of the the cutout silhouette in black paper. And when you look at those done in homes, that they would have them framed of their children, you really can sense the specifics of that child many times. In other words, it isn't a shorthand version of a child. You, you get a sense of, it's astonishing how a silhouette, when it's done well and with care, can signal the fully fleshed out body without ever showing it. You're just showing the contour line and the void of blackness. Where you fill in what that person might look like. Um, so, the, the whole idea of the, of the silhouette for me was the specifics of the given contour, which give you a sense of a real person, and then the void of the blackness to actually flesh out perhaps yourself, your own behavior, or current social contrivances, behaviors, constructions, or whatever. So it's, it's a, I think it's a, it's a very kind of useful and very elastic format that you can go from the very general to the very specific and from the very specific to the very general. So I am just was
0: even looking at it as a formal structure. So you're politely saying to me, no, it was not necessarily intended as a complication of gender. <laughs> no. Right. no. A little as we get into the mid to late '90s, and I guess the early aughts, the figure is back in your paintings as recognizable bodies, fully formed, two and a half dimensional, if you will, because everything in your paintings is up against the picture picture plane. So we don't really get an opportunity for three dimensional. The figure figure is back um, in a series of works that address masculinity and and what it is, and in some ways the silliness of the construct. Because there are so few figures in your body of work, when do you decide to bring it in? What makes you decide this is a place or an idea or an engagement that needs the figure?
1: Well, like for example, as we're speaking now the, these are, we'll, we're look now looking to the wall adjacent to us, or the figure is going to make another appearance in the next body of work that I'm preparing for an exhibition in at Lehman Mopin Gallery in March. In New York. In New York. And the title of the show, as I always do, the title comes right at the beginning. And the title of the show is Found Buried. So what do Found Buried? I love that every week we some coin is found in some field in rural in rural Britain or some Amazing amphora jar is found off the coast or a new mummy is found in Alexandria or a new fresh grave site is found in a war zone. Or so it's just the whole idea of how the earth is a great... It's, it's, it's this... We always think of the oceans as this vast depth, but I think the more frightening... Receiver of history is the actual earth, and what exactly is still in there is really intriguing to me and frightening. What is actually in there? So that's the whole idea of found buried is is also is is necessitating bringing the figure back again as well as objects.
0: So it sometimes just has to be there. It's not something you think through. As differently from you think of flowers or something else, it's just what fits
1: it. What, yes, in other words, I think I was again coming back from the title, like in the way that we were discussing early on in the first part of our conversation of Declaration of Independence and how that dove also happened to dovetail in with autobiography. Yes, I think that, um, you know, in this case, the, the formation of right from the beginning of the title, as necessitating, well, what exactly do we find buried? We find bodies and objects buried. That's really pretty much it.
0: Uh, we've been talking about the content of the paintings. Now let's kind of talk a bit about how and why the paintings get made the way they get made. Surface seems important to you right from the start? In Birthplace, from 1984, which is the first work in the exhibition, but chronologically the second work in the show, you, you applied gold leaf to what appears to be a vaguely pulped board. It's not a pulped board, in, 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 you know, you can see the grain of the board um, and that it's pulped, is what I'm trying to say. It's a work that itself, but also its placement in the show, that argues for how important the surface of your paintings was and is to you. When and why did you come to care about the surface so much?
1: Well, I'm happy that painting is in the exhibition because it also reflects my, really directly reflected my day job, which was in my 30s, I worked for Angelo Dongia, and I was a salesperson in his showroom, which is on the corner of San Vicente and Melrose, right across from what is now the Pacific Design Center. Mm-hmm. And I worked there for many years, and I thought, you know, I think all artists do this with their day jobs saying, what can I get out of this moment that I have to do and bring it to my studio? So I was no different, you know, like, how do I make the thinking, the boredom, uh, the excitement, the materiality of that experience in the day job and bring it to your studio. So I was doing that. So that that painting is on mahogany panel, is a wallpaper that I bought at a discount because I would get an employee discount. And it's a, is distressed cork over gold leaf. So I had a wallpaper person, professional wallpaper person, Come and adhere the whole background of the painting, which I think that painting is maybe ten by ten feet, nine by nine feet square in, in two panels and so you know that was you know it's a bit the very beginning of of the kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with materials with surface, and that's why I named it birthplace, so the a birthplace Wait, is... Wait,
0: did you name it birthplace in 1984 or did you name it later? No, 1984, 1984
1: okay. yeah. So the birthplace is not a city. It's not a neighborhood. It's not a childhood location. It's actually that surface was my birthplace. And it started with the lamination of the uh, wood panel with this highly artificialized, sensate, almost synthetic, performative surface.
0: And that interest in surface then carries all the way through. And you never wavered from it as an important thing? No. Because?
1: Because I thought that my birthplace, in all of its interiority, had to be synthetic and not organic, that I wanted to insist that to deessentialize experience. You know, we're taught that authentic experience is real experience, and primary experience is authentic experience. Mm-hmm. And right from the beginning, I wanted to insist on that synthetic experience is also primary experience, mm-hmm. and that synthetic experience is also original and authentic experience, mm. you know. Did I say that right?
0: Yeah, did you did, and it made me wonder. I, I, I assume you've never used oil paint? I have. Oh, you have. Yes. So, so you have used more yes. non-synthetic paint. At the I world. mean, I, I guess
1: maybe that is mm. going back to Declaration of Independence and birthplace, the place of birth of me, but of my work. The The inception of my work was to move away from neo-expressionism or expressionism and to actually debunk that type of all those registers of authenticity based in essentialized thinking and experience.
0: Name all the Los Angeles expressionist painters of... Yeah, okay, right? None. There is a read about the surface of your paintings that they reflect uh, influence of, engagement with, conversation with um, L.A. Finnish Fetish from McCracken to Irwin, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. yay or nay?
1: No, and I'll tell you why. I think as much as I admire that work, they are still tethered to our materiality with the resonances of of abstraction and of reduction and minimalism. Yeah. So that's where I depart.
0: I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of things that are constant throughout 40 years of work or almost 40 years, over 40 years of work. Um, but there is nothing more constant in, at least for me, in your oeuvre than um, the way you slap everything uh, up against the picture plane. There is very, very, very little pictorial depth in, in your paintings. And when I've thought about it in the last couple of weeks, I can't think of any. Uh, non-abstract painter that insists on throwing stuff up against the picture plane as consistently as you do since Cubism. And if if listeners have one, tweet or email me because if there is one, I, I just can't think of it. Him or her. Why have you? Why has that been such an important core tenet? Let me fast forward a little bit before I go back. I.
1: Love to drive in Los Angeles. I know that. I can't fathom (laughs) it. I don't know. There's something so exciting to me. Um, My daily route down down Franklin, down Western, down Sunset, through to get to school, to UCLA, where I still teach, and back. I know the entire city without a GPS. Being from west to east north to, I know the whole city I love the act of driving and part of it is is that the windshield of my car flattens everything out flattens experience out and frames it formally so I like that's why I generally prefer to take longer to traverse the city and not get on the freeway because uh, the I prefer to be on the surface streets, and the the windshield of my car is a curatorial device and a formalizing device of what I'm receiving. So that's for my entire adult life living here and driving. that's very a very important visual exercise for me on a daily basis. how that is. That able that's able to set up a proscenium stage in a way for for viewing of complex imagery, so it helps on a curatorial level and sets it 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 insists on the issue of the tableau, of the flatness of the tableau. Then going back, let's go back now. When I started again, that kind of de-essentialization. I mean, if I was going to try to make contemporary painting at twenty two and also being an atheist and let's use the older term at that
0: time gay Um,
1: (laughs) as i would have referred to
0: myself at that age um oh so you aren't you aren't you aren't saying atheist meant gay you no you really mean gay okay yes (laughs) yes (laughs) that
1: that called for if i was if i were to attempt as an atheist and as a young gay men to make a painting, and try to make it feel contemporary and useful again, and of some service, that what came before it is these high dosages of essentialization of the relationship between the maker of the object and the object being made, which was a painting, or that the painting was there to, as a vehicle, to tell the truth, to be authentic, to be a direct tether to personal feelings, expressions, emotions. And I was leaning more towards synthetic experience simply because of my own cultural dislocation as a gay young man and trying to find authenticity within a type of displaced, alienated synthetic experience that anyway, by the way, all young kids go through. I just simply acted on it because I was interested in the vehicle of painting. So, maybe if I were doing performance at the time, or video, I wouldn't have done it. But painting mandated, actually mandated to me, that I had to move away from all those other defaulting ways of making it. All those emotionally defaulting, expressionistically defaulting ways of creating visual imagery. So. One of the things that had to go was that type of pictorial depth as a vehicle for, as a device to indicate authenticity and truthfulness, another essentialized idea of
0: experience. So as a corollary to that, for you, is or was, the closer something is, the closer a painting is to the picture plane, the truer it is? No, No. the more irrefutable it is. (laughs) I like that. Another constant through much of the work is the way you have used um, often very thin white lines, sometimes appearing to be beaded, sometimes not, um, sometimes with things hanging off of these white lines, sometimes not, to hold elements of a composition together, to link the major parts of a composition of a painting. It's in the dining room painting we talked about earlier, for example, it's there in the beloved and despised paintings and it's there, and I'm going to regret this description um, as soon as I say it, in the giant kind of infinity shape that underpins an American place. Why is that connective line important?
1: Again, as we've discussed, the role of the applied or the decorative arts is an important text for me to have studied and continue to study in the making of my paintings. For example, the role of the garland in interior decoration. The garland, many times, is mm-hmm. what connects, let's say, a cameo where some event or portrait is taking place. So it's just uh, the garland as a, as a connecting device mm-hmm. It says, let's go from this portrait to the next one, to the next one, and used as a device to connect meaning literally, an interior decoration. The tie-back for a curtain to close the pictorial space or open it up to the outside world. The idea of tethering and untethering, much like a spider, spider web, you know. Always very delicate, highly considered connections, but it's also a way of suggesting to the viewer ways of physically navigating the surface of the painting. Like the painting that you're describing. I could any picked any. It, 50, it, yes, but, there are yeah. many, many routes that one can take through those little filigree dotted lines that say, go from neo-geo black-white squares to gun. Go from gun to fulgent overripe gourd. So, it's also suggesting a kind of choreography of the painting in the way that I was talking about the garland in the interior room, of choreographing a way of approaching the meaning and decoration in interior space, you know.
0: Lots of garlands in Carrie James Marshall's paintings too. The same, yeah. So I don't know how to describe this, <laughs> this next thing I want to ask about, but it's also in the painting, in, in the work consistently throughout. The paintings are full of painted, but ink-like lines and doodads and passages, often um, against white backgrounds so that they stand out all the more. Initially, they were often separated from the rest of the composition by virtue of these white spaces. As as, as you've gone through the years, you've decided to or figured out how to just make these ink-drawing-like passages just part of the compositions. Uh, what are they, where did they come from, and why are they important?
1: I guess when I'm thinking of making a painting, I go from the very general to the very particular. Right from the beginning, a formal issue, strictly formal issue, is setting up the architecture of the experience, the architecture of the space, a physical armature that will hold all these things that I'm attaching to it Makes sense, So that kind of almost brutal, pragmatic analysis and evaluation of the surface comes very right away or else I'm in trouble. If I delay that, and I have, I make that mistake fairly often that I delay that large formatting of the experience too much into the third half of the painting, I'm in trouble what you're talking about is what I call, I mean, I know this sounds strange to say, but it's almost that last moment where the painting puts on its own false eyelashes. You're ready to leave the house and you you take a brutal analysis of yourself. Am I presentable? What do I look like? And you make just the most minute adjustment to your presentation out into the public. I know that might sound antique an idea to a lot of your listeners, but I was still raised in a a home and in a generation where the way you dressed and lived inside was different from the way you presented in public. You know, those distinctions of leaving the house were so huge and still are for me. So these fine filigrade moments or, you know, fine line work, as you suggest on light grounds, are a way of saying to the viewer, yes, I'm advancing this meta experience, but there's also, it's maybe almost an insistence on the folly of the moment, in the way that I said putting on the fake eyelashes onto the painting, which is in and of itself a folly or the delusionism, the self-delusionism of assessing yourself in a mirror before you walk out into the world. It's a form of folly. So I guess that's kind of how it operates. But it's also at the very end. That happens always at the very end of the making of the painting. That's what
0: I was going to ask. So it's both the last thing we see often in a painting as we move physically toward it, but it's also the last thing you do on the painting. Before the painting's made public. You know, we were talking about the flatness of the painting and how you don't do illusionistic space, but you have often in many paintings over many years, going back to the mid-80s, built up paint to provide topography on, on your surfaces. In the early paintings, it's generally in the corners. Um, it's flat expanses of usually paint of a dark color that's, that's built up in these flat planes that play off of each other. In later paintings, it gets much more complicated and crafty. And so I wanted to ask about that a little. One of, um, you obviously know you're doing it and have great intentionality about doing it. There's a 2016 painting titled Grisaille Ethics and Not Painting with Cataplasm, number one. Cataplasm is the thing I'm, I'm describing. And in that painting, it's, it reads as candle wax. Is there a way you think of that move, of that extension of the painting of that creation of the extension of the painting into our space, the viewer space, the building of topography into the painting.
1: Again, it's completely, uh, when I do use, like in the paintings, Rizzi ethics and knots paintings with cataplasms. First of all, the cataplasm is a poultice of sorts A
0: cataplasm is a poultice. I have to interrupt for a second. I had to look up cataplasm in the dictionary Mm -hmm. and it literally says see poultice. Yes.
1: (laughs) So, In this case, it's, again, when I use uh, the buildup of paint. And I'm so excited that it showed up again. You know, it shows up very early in the exhibition and then Mm -hmm. makes an appearance at the end. Mm -hmm. And I was excited by that. And actually, that was a group of paintings that I showed in Berlin in that year. And, again, I wanted to insist on synthetic experience, artificial experience, topical experience which is what a poultice does you actually lay uh, a poultice on the top of let's say your arm that might have a rash or an infection and it's supposed to soothe it and maybe draw out the malady of sorts that's what a poultice might do in this case these paintings are physically ill so i'm actually applying a poultice onto the surface of the painting to draw out uh, or to remedy whatever is occurring in the painting itself. So it's it's actually the poultice, what is indicated by the poultice is that it didn't come out of the internal logic of the making of the painting. It yeah. came, it came out from an exterior force. Yes, me, but maybe some other exterior force would say, oh my God, these paintings are ill, let's apply a poultice onto the surface of these paintings. So it's also acknowledging the kind of painting as object, but the synthetic nature of the experience as well as being primary experience.
0: And the paintings are so flat in so many ways otherwise that it always... Leaps off. Yes,. The surface. And there's no connection. There's
1: no relationship. Like, mm-hmm. for example, I'm excited that there's no relationship between the poultice and the painting, and they are deeply unaware of each other's
0: existence. <laughs> Last question on formal stuff. One of the things that seems to kind of scream out of the show is that when you make a horizontal painting, a painting that is very horizontal, that you are intending it as an, as an extra chesty painting, as an extra, as an extra big deal painting, an extra specific address of your life, of America, of the themes that we've been discussing here. Is that curatorial or are you doing that?
1: Horizontal paintings are the most difficult paintings for me to make. I don't think that way. I feel mm. much more comfortable on a formal level, orchestrating ideas, in a vertical format in a painting. I guess I think of it, I mean, that's what I get from Western European religious painting that I love, or folk art even, the the format of the iconic, the icon that I've learned so much about and gotten so much from. So for me to make a horizontal painting is just, it's the hardest thing for me to do. All the paintings that I'm doing for the new show are horizontal. And I guess this is maybe my own kick in the butt, but I always make a list of things that I can't do anymore, or things that I should try again that are difficult or I'm not comfortable with, and that's one of them. Mm. And I think that maybe the horizontal is this wonderful moment that can seem cinematic, yeah. operatic, proscenium stage, overt drama. It, it lends itself to that as opposed to to the other format which is vertical so it invariably demands in of me really a different approach uh, almost I, I become more throwaway in the horizontal format i I have to sometimes take bigger risks that I'm very uncomfortable with and unsure
0: about and I want to close with, if you will, the semiotics of Larry. There are things, forgive the word, that have been in the paintings and recur in the paintings over 30 or 40 years. You know, there's an there's a, a increasingly popular in European art history circles publishing format that is kind of the dictionary of artist X. you know, the dictionary of Henri Matisse, where um, art historians will break down and extend it a very you know, long oeuvre by things that are organizable in dictionary format and describe them and how artists an artist used them and what the artist meant by them it's an interesting uh, new not I don't know anybody in America who's done a um, way of organizing information visual information in a textual form so the inevitable first semiotics related question is was Jasper Johns important to you is Jasper Johns important to you
1: Sometimes his work is unbearable to me. It's such an eloquent, exquisite, repressed, closeted, accurate, real, wrenching, emotional portrait of a human being that I'm just really, really far away from and not interested in looking at.
0: And you all are generationally different in terms of the American yes. experience, too. Absolutely. Yes. But the way he has specific meanings for specific objects.
1: I think he's a symbolist. I'm not a symbolist.
0: Do you mean symbolist in the redond way or a symbolist No, a, in
1: a, 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 I think he uses symbols. In other oh, words, one image, one meaning. I'm interested in the mutability of cognitive language. Um, that you could look at a flower in one painting and then that flower is a person in the other painting, or that flower is an idea in the next painting, or the flower is the anus in another, another painting, or the flower is the labia in another painting. You do it with the noose and yes. the anus too. So I, I'm not. A, I don't use the imagery. Is it's all about suggesting to the viewer that, yes, these things occur regularly and reappear constantly from work to work, but you have to exercise or control your cognitive language of it and suppress it to be able to enter the painting because it's proposing a new association with it not a symbolic
0: association with it. So there are not things you use, say, eggs or light bulbs, for example, that remain... No, they're not symbols... No, but they don't They don't have... I know they are symbols of the bigger world. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they don't have consistent meanings for you and how you use them across no. bodies of work. Not at all. Not at all. Owls?
1: Well, like, for example, the owl in in many of the paintings, just from male to female... It does. ...with not a problem, or embodies, in many cases, both genders. Again, I looked at the owl as a malleable image mm-hmm. and not necessarily a symbolic image, and that's why... I'm interested, and maybe to get more to your question, I'm interested in symbols, but I'm interested in dislocating the one accepted reading of the symbol, the canonical meaning of the symbol, and secularize it a bit.
0: A good example of that might be the way you use. Uh, a certain shape, as both a leaf and as a vulva yes. type shape, over and over again. Not sure necessarily in the same painting, mm-hmm. but how how that form, if that's really a form, has um, malleability. Mm-hmm. I guess one of
1: the things that I always get from viewers is that they'll point to something in the painting and say, "Well, what does that mean?" And so I I think I think with With Jasper Johns, there probably is a code that will always remain deeply uh, unencodable and personal, but one one can take some idea, one can get some idea of what they might mean because of their historic reoccurrence. I would say, when someone asked me, what does this mean? I said, well, first, before you get there, that's not how you you can have the experience with a painting, What is the logic that's being... What's the internal logic that's being advanced in the painting? And then look at the attendant meaning of the objects, not the other way around. That the attendant meaning of the objects that are being viewed are not the key to entering the experience of the painting, but the interior logic of... Visual logic of the painting is a way to enter the painting, and then that suggests the attendant meaning of the specific objects which derails your cognitive language expectations of what is prompted by that object normally.
0: There are a lot of things that recur in the paintings, owls, candles, fish, flowers, ships, boats, light bulbs, eyes, but there are still new things that come in. So in the mid-2010s, I think for the first time, you bring in dominoes. Do you lean on yourself to bring in new things and not use the same toolkit?
1: Well, that the, the paintings you're referring to were, was a, a group of paintings called Nuevos Caprichos. And it was, again, as we were talking earlier, I, it's a conjectural um, introduction of two people who did not know each other historically, but spoke with equally, but very different, brutal existential voices. And that's Emily Dickinson and Francisco Goya. The domino, so I think it was a series of 10 paintings that I showed at Barbara Gladstone in New York. And the, the way they were installed, it was considered as an installation. So in dominoes, I don't play parlor games.
0: I had Uh, to sit there and think, wait, are these called dominoes? Yes, yes. They're they're dominoes. dominoes. (laughs) And so you hook up a
1: five to a five to proceed, and then the other side might be a three, and you hook up the three to the three. So the installation of the painting, of the paintings around this very large room, were connected by their domino connection uh, as it was installed originally. But it's also a, you know comes out of uh, the roots of romance languages to dominate or dominating. Or...
0: And they suggest an element of chance, which runs through Goya's capricios.
1: Yes, chance and connectiveness, also just simply as a f- formal structure. I'm, I, I love formal structures as well. Like we were talking earlier about these little filigrid tethering devices. That's a, a different type of tethering device. The domino may be a little bit more graphic, more obvious in connecting the paintings. But it was also a way of introducing a connector from painting to painting that insists on the connection between Goya's uh, laser-sharp understanding of brutality as well as through the pastoral lens, romantic lens of Emily Dickinson, her deep secularism, her atheism, and maybe her proto lesbianism as well where she writes so specifically about pain as located outside of the body and more as an intellectualized construct out in the world and not located within the physical body or her, her poems about death so i stayed away from the poems that dealt with let's say love or specifically about nature or things like that but these specific poems are as brutal as any goya and vice versa.
0: Do you have to push yourself to find those new things to bring into the paintings like the dominoes? Because I mean like the light bulbs have been there forever. Yeah. But do you think to yourself, hmm, too many light bulbs lately, maybe you gotta find a new thing?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, maybe and I I don't mean this in um in an effete or um delusional way, but I, I try to maintain that vanity in, in my practice. It's, it's a vanity for the objects and for the practice that they keep, they keep advancing, but they also keep changing. I guess if I have an anxiety after this wonderful exhibition at the Hammer, or it's always been my anxiety at whatever age, I. I, want, I I hope I can remain relevant, which is different from being topical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the distinction I make. So it's a very important, I think a lot of work right now is very topical, but I don't think topicality necessarily means relevance.
0: Larry Pittman, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Tyler. It's been my pleasure.
0: 19th-century gothic literature, meets San Francisco film noir in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, on view at the Legion of Honor Museum. Known for playful artworks that challenge traditional storytelling, Alexander Singh explores the motif of the doppelganger through a fantastical, thrilling short film presented alongside a selection of prints, sculptures, and paintings from the museum's collection. Mirrored walls inside the exhibition create a visually striking space from which to contemplate the doppelganger motif. Catch a glimpse of your doppelganger in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hessa, In the episode focused on Alice Neal, Molesworth speaks with artists Simone Lee and Moira Davey, and Neal talks about motherhood, inequality, economic hardship, and her own mental health challenges. Binge the entire series now at getty.edu slash recording artists. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator Allison Hurst, The exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses, explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18, 2019 through February 9, 2020. Welcome back. My next guest is George Shackelford, who, along with Esther Bell, is the curator of Renoir, The Body, The Senses. It's at the Kimball Art Museum. The exhibition focuses on Renoir's art about the human form and features the work of artists at whose art Renoir was looking, such as Boucher and Corbet, as well as art by early modern artists who were looking at Renoir. It's on view through January 26, 2020. The fine catalog was published by the Clark Art Institute, which originated the exhibition. You can get it on Amazon for $38. George Shackleford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Glad to be with you.
0: Why was Renoir's engagement with the body, particularly the nude, over the course of his long career, a subject you wanted to study and exhibit?
2: It's a collaborative process with my colleague and great friend Esther Bell from the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And Esther joined the Clark uh, a couple of years ago and rightly figured that the Clark needed to mark the centenary of Renoir's death with a major exhibition for the summer of 1919. When she came to me for confab about what that subject should be, I immediately thought of the idea of the nude because the Clark owns two of the really greatest of the nudes from the 1880s, the blonde bather from 1881, and the uh, nude arranging her hair from a couple of years later. And so with those anchors, really, or, or keystones, maybe perhaps better, the exhibition had a real focus for being in Williamstown. When she invited me to accompany her on this journey through Renoir's Nudes, I said, by all means, and let's have the show come to the Kimball as well this autumn. And it opened on the 27th of October and it'll run through the end of January. The nudes was a subject in Renoir that seemed to me to have been, I don't wanna say marginalized, but not properly tackled. How about that for a, for a phrase? It's so important. Everybody knows that, that Renoir is one of the great painters of the nude in the 19th century, certainly. And it just hadn't been been concentrated on in a way that we have now done and we think was very much worthwhile doing.
0: About a third of the paintings in the show are not Renoir's. It made me wonder if part of your interest in this show was highlighting Renoir as a kind of pivot, as an artist who was looking at the art historical past at at the Louvre. And because perhaps it was to a certain extent through Renoir, that younger painters, the early moderns, access the past.
2: You know, I think that's certainly what has happened in you know dynamically in terms of the experience of the exhibition, where you you first encounter Renoir in a in a room surrounded by works by artists going far as far back as Rubens and uh, as near in time to him as Courbet and Corot. And then at the end of the exhibition, you see Renoir sort of telescoped into the the future with works by Bonnard, uh, Matisse, Picasso that were actually created after Renoir had died. But the idea of including these works was really, in large part, to make Renoir come into greater focus. And if as a pivot, then that's one kind of understanding we can have of him, but also it, it, it served, I think, and it serves for us to make clear to our visitors what it is that Renoir does that his colleagues, his contemporaries, that is, his predecessors or his followers in a way don't do. I think in particular of a, of a wall in Fort Worth where we have a spectacular Renoir that Margaret McDermott owned and gave to the Dallas Museum of Art. Hangs next to a Degas from the Krieger Museum in Washington, and a Cezanne from the Petit Palais in Paris. And here Renoir is displayed with two artists whom he knew well, with whom he exhibited. In the case of Cezanne, for whom he held held a sort of lifetime friendship and admiration. With Degas, an artist he saw socially well into the 90s and and a little bit thereafter. So. The Renoir is as unlike the Cezanne and the Degas as you could possibly be. And everything that it is, that is to say, elegant, refined, sensual, lovely, textural, beautiful, you know, tender, the Degas is not and the Cezanne are not. The Degas is tense and kind of brutal and the woman can't get her comb to go through her hair. And in the Cezanne, the figures are Chunky and blocky and mechanical almost when you compare it to the sort of lyrical, rhythmic movements of the of the graceful beauty by Renoir. Whose face, by the way, we don't ever see.
0: Let's kind of go back to the beginning of the show. You mentioned Corbet and Corot. What is Renoir seeing in their treatment of the nude and I guess particularly the bather that he is both borrowing and adding to.
2: In that first gallery of the exhibition, we have two works by Renoir painted in 1870. One is from San Paolo, from the the great museum there, and it's a bather with a griffin dog, Lise on the banks of the Seine, and it shows Lise Treot, his then lover, as a Parisian girl out for an uh, an outing of some kind, she's removed her clothes and she is presumably going to swim in the river in a painting hanging right next to it from the same year. Lise also in this case impersonates a a water nymph. And on the adjacent wall, we have a courbet from the late 1840s of a sleeping bather who like the bather by the Seine is in fact a very person of, absolute modern times. Her clothing is there. It's clearly modern clothing. She is a, a nude of our time and place in a setting that has made her somewhat more abstracted and more art historical, if you will. In the case of the Koro, in the wonderful picture from the Corcoran collection now at the National Gallery in Washington, the nymph, we see her, or the Bacchant, we see her as a, a, an absolutely mythological figure, but with all the kind of, I don't know, reality and, and weight and presence of a living being. In both of the cases of Courbet and Corot, their treatments of the nude were criticized by art critics or the, the, the writers of the period as being perhaps a bit too real and too maybe slightly scruffy or dusty or dirty. And we see this thing, same thing happening with Renoir, and I think, it's a, I think it's actually what Renoir is looking for in his admiring of Courbet and Corot. He's looking for a kind of juste milieu between the tough realism of some of Courbet's most out there uh, subjects and the salon ideal. Because he's looking absolutely to, to, to gain success at the Salon, but he's trying to figure out how far can he push this realist notion? How modern can he make his nude seem while still having her be within the the rules of the game, if you will, for the Salon? And so I think Corot and Courbet offer him examples either to follow or to slightly play with, if you will, because I think he... I think he, he pulls back from the, the grittiest, most in-your-face aspects of Courbet, for instance, by quoting Praxiteles in the, in the pose of his nude.
0: There's also a great moment in the Renoir painting where the untied red ribbon of the Courbet kind of resurfaces in the Renoir, only it's still tied. There's a blue textile underneath the nude in the Courbet, and there's a blue textile garment in the pile of clothing at the bottom of the Renoir. There are all these little tips of the cap, if you will.
2: I'd, I'd love to know whether actually, whether Renoir actually knew that very picture which you're talking about from the Detroit Institute of Arts. I, I, I as yet can't verify that he absolutely did, but it's, it's fascinating the, the relationship between the two. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And of course, Renoir isn't just looking at his near contemporaries. He's going all the way back to the 18th century. Who in the 18th century is he looking at, and, and how do you set that up in the show?
2: Well, it's above all, it's Boucher. François Boucher, the great Rococo master, one of the first painters to the king, is the the sort of consummate artist of the female nude in the French Rococo. And he really exemplifies for Renoir what the the great... Traditions of the previous century were about, you know, when we think now of the 18th century, we think of it as so, you know, so remote and so well, the ancien regime as being something that's from a very distant past. But remember that that for Renoir, the Boucher that he loves the most is basically a hundred year old painting. It's it's like a like a a Cubist Picasso for us now. It doesn't seem so very remote in time. And so the revival of interest in the 18th century that takes place in the mid 19th century is something that Renoir, you know, definitely participates in. And one of the key factors in this was the purchase by the Louvre of Boucher's Diana at Her Bath, a a painting from the mid 18th century that was that was acquired by the Louvre in 1852. Now, this is added by the museum to its collection of largely royal paintings, and it's a painting that's very, very different from the ones that had been owned by the the state before, by the king. We assume that the great collection of, of 18th century paintings that we know now as the Louvre collection was always available, but much of it was given to the Louvre considerably later in date. And this purchase of the Boucher was really remarked on by many, many artists. And artists like Manet or Tissot or Fontalatour, they rushed to the Louvre to register to make copies of this very painting. Renoir refers to it much, much later when he's talking with the dealer Ambroise Vollard. He refers to it as the as the first painting that he really fell in love with it with, and that he has carried it with him his entire life. He says, like your like your first lover, um it's a painting that has stayed with him uh, so long. We were immensely grateful for the Louvre to the Louvre for being willing to lend the painting to our exhibition and to let us display it between two works by Renoir that, are rather direct references to it. Uh, One, a painting from the Albright-Knox and another from the Clark Art Institute.
0: You couldn't do a show on Renoir and the nude uh, without including Cezanne, and there are some wonderful Cezannes here. Renoir refers to Cezanne in in, in a lot of ways, bathers, outdoors. What, for you, are the most important things Renoir takes from Cezanne's bathers?
2: Well, it's it, it's a certainly an interesting problem because we know what Renoir saw when they were exhibiting together in the 1870s in the couple of of Impressionist exhibitions where their works were shown at the same time, and that would include, for instance, the the wonderful bather from the Barnes collection, the early bather set in a landscape with the fantastic triangle of green light that. Superb picture. Needless to say, not in this exhibition. The best Cezanne in America, in my book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then you know, we know we know that he goes to uh, X and spends some time with Cezanne in the early 1880s. But by the mid 1890s, when Vollard holds the retrospective of Cezanne in Paris we see him actually acquiring a work by Renoir. And that is the so-called battle of love from the national gallery of art that is in the exhibition, a work that he then owns until sometime in the teens in maybe 1911 or 12, when he chooses to sell it for some reason, don't understand quite why, but it is with him then for almost a decade. And, at the time in the late 1890s when he is turning back to making multifigured compositions that are based on the idea that he has explored in the late 1880s for a large multifigured composition of nudes in the landscape, but on a different scale. And I think the small size of the Cezanne that he owned um, after the mid-1890s has something to do with with the ways in which he tries to create these smaller easel-scale p- paintings—not not big, large-scale, uh, if you will, sort of museumy paintings—but instead paintings on a on a more uh, manageable uh, scale, but filled with figures. The Bathers in the Forest from the Barnes is is an example. The beautiful Bather with a Crab from the Cleveland Museum of Art that's in her exhibition is another. And I think he's using that Cezanne not to copy it in any way, but as as an example of how another artist could tackle the problem of having three, four, five, in the case of the Cezanne, probably eight or maybe even ten, figures disposed in a landscape in these rhythmic poses that are not necessarily very narrative. The the big groupings of Bathers in the forest that Renoir does in the in the late 1890s barely have a pretext in in any kind of reality. They're, they're assemblies of of figures across a, a plane much more thinking about like Titian or 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 Boucher than they are about any kind of narrative that it would have a basis in in any kind of fact. So I think there I think Cezanne reaffirms Renoir's interest in making paintings that are about painting. And I think he sees that in Cezanne very clearly that here's an artist who is fundamentally making pictures that are about Art, that art itself rather than about some kind of nature or or narrative taken from the real world.
0: We'll have images of all four or five of those paintings on manpodcast.com. In the preface to the catalog, which you wrote with Esther Bell, you all make the note that Matisse is clearly paying attention to this moment between Cezanne uh, and Renoir Matisse of course from very early in his career owned uh, a Cezanne Bather's painting that's in the show the Petit Palais painting we talked about earlier but that at the Barnes Matisse is engaging this Cezanne Renoir moment with his great dance mural which is extending the the paintings on canvas into the decorative sphere something of course that Matisse does at key moments throughout his career particularly in moments of of national crisis at the end of World War 1 and during and after World War 2 which is all a lovely transition toward Picasso and Matisse and Brock, and how, even as they were making their own advances and arguments about depicting the nude Matisse in 1907, of course, by painting it in the context of the French Imperial Project in Algeria, Picasso and Brock both responding to that painting with various levels of success, that Renoir is paying attention to them and that he responds or may, may be responding to their work. How does, how does he do that? And
2: how do you show it? Well, I think what really happens is that he sees maybe seeing it in, in some of their work, but maybe also coming at it just by the natural evolution of his own, well, his natural progression, he moves towards a greater monumentality in the years around 1900 to 1910, shown in the exhibition by amazing paintings from the Musée de l'Orangerie and the Musée d'Orsay, from the Detroit Institute of Arts, the uh, Belvedere Museum in Vienna, and then slightly thereafter in the move into sculpture, which occurs in the early teens, when he begins to make truly monumental figures, bigger than life in many cases. And I think I think there's a, a sort of direction towards making nudes that are big statements, and particularly the isolated nude or the nude with just one other figure. And I think that's what you're seeing in in Matisse, Picasso, Brock. At the same time, it's a statement of the eternal meaning, or maybe better, the eternal significance of the nude as a a, a, a sort of classic cornerstone element in in the creation of great art and that very much especially in France absolutely and going back going back of course to the the golden age the great century of of Louis the 14th but also repeated again and again across time think of Angre think of David think of the Poussin needless to say uh, before and all the way into artists of Renoir's generation and and I think you're right At at moments of national crisis, when the notion of the Frenchness of French art needs to be reasserted, we find Renoir, like Picasso, like Matisse, coming to terms with that by making pictures like the last bathers of uh, 1918, 1919, that is really the culmination of this exhibition.
0: George Shackelford, thanks very much.
2: Glad to have been with you anytime.